0: So let's, let's talk next about the Davidic Covenant, okay? So when you think Davidic Covenant, what what text should come to mind? 2 Samuel seven, seven. 7, good. Um, no 8 Covenant, what text? Genesis 6, Genesis six through, nine. through 9. Genesis 6 through 9. Uh, Abrahamic Covenant, what should come to mind? 12, 15, 17, good. Davidic covenant. Oh yeah, mosaic covenant, Sinai covenant. Nineteen twenty and so on. But especially nineteen and twenty. Good. Sinai covenant. Second Samuel seven. I'm sorry. Davidic covenant. Second Samuel seven. Good. So let's look at the Sinai. At the <laughs> you can tell it's almost done. Thursday. We have like an hour and a half left in class. I can feel it too. Good. Uh, I want you to look at 2 Samuel 7 and look for our five covenant indicators. Right? So we already noted the word covenant's not in 2 Samuel 7. The word covenant does not appear in 2 Samuel 7. Uh, however, our covenant indicators do. So look at 2 Samuel 7. Talk to people in your group. Look for covenant parties. Obligations, rewards, and penalties—is it strictly binding, and is there a covenant sign? Oh, did we mention what's the covenant sign of the old co- of the Sinai covenant? We didn't. We didn't mention that. What, what do you think? What's the covenant sign of the uh, Sinai covenant? What do you think? The ark of the, the, ark of, the ark of the covenant. Yeah, the ark of the covenant. Right. The ark of the covenant is the covenant sign. But even when you get when you go to the Ark of the, Co- what's on top of the Ark of the Covenant? Cherubim. The cherubim it's the mercy seat right? Yeah. God is enthroned between the cherubim, right meaning that the uh, Ark of the Covenant is God's throne. It's the place where he dwells and it's also the place where the blood is splattered and mercy is received. and only after you go through the cherubim, only after you go through the mercy seat where the blood is splattered then, you see the law, mm-hmm. right? So even within that itself, you see that mercy, grace, redemption comes before law. But doesn't
1: even the circumcision stand
0: as from the Abrahamic? Yeah, it, it carries over, but that's a sign of continuity between the Abrahamic and Sinai covenants, right? Yeah, but yeah, the Ark of the Covenant would clearly be the, the covenant uh, sign. Excellent. Davidic covenant. Look for our five things. Covenant parties, obligations, reward, penalties, strictly binding, and covenant sign. Okay, uh, so we got the easy one first, right? Who are the covenant parties? David and God. David and God. And the son of David, right? Good. David and God and God and the son of David. The son of David and God. Good. What are the obligations of the covenant? God
1: will,
0: his God will establish the kingdom. Good. What are the obligations for David? Say it again. Where do you see that in 2 Samuel 7? Uh-huh. But the, the still, there's no obligation given to that son, right? But he's not commanding the son to do something. He's—he's—he's he's, he's what he's saying is how he will act towards the son when iniquity is committed. But he's not making an explicit command for the son to not commit iniquity. What he's doing, who's he contrasting this monarchy with? Saul, right? So Saul committed iniquity and the garments were torn, right? So, so your kingdom is torn from you, right? Um, but if David, there will be a throne, there will be someone ruling from David's throne forever, even if he commits iniquity. I'm not going to treat him like I treated Saul. I think we can say, because there's continuity between the Sinai Covenant and the Davidic Covenant, there are obligations for the king to rule with the law, to write the law yearly, as was prescribed, I believe, in Deuteronomy 17. However, 2 Samuel 7 does not give any explicit commands to David, or any specific covenant obligations to David. God takes all the obligations upon himself, right? Right? All the obligations are from God. God will make David an everlasting kingdom. Rewards and penalties. What are rewards and penalties? Uh Uh-huh. I'm saying it's... It's implicit, right? It's not explicit, though. The, in the initiation of the covenant, God does not tell David, "You must do this," and David does not say, "Yes, I will do it." We don't have a Exodus nineteen moment where all the words of the Lord—all the words the Lord says—we will do. We don't have that. Miss again, Samus. i is all I'm trying to say. What are the what are the rewards and penalties, or are there any? Yeah, an everlasting throne. Rest. Good. Which rest harks back to what covenant? Uh, yeah, it, it's realized in the new covenant, but where, where is rest found? In the, old, in the Old Testament. In the promised land, yeah. I mean, go through the book of Joshua and circle all the times that rest is mentioned. Rest comes when you inherit the promised land. We'll get more to that later. Is it strictly binding? Is there a way out of it? No. And like Abraham, God comes to David and says, this is what we're doing. <laughs> like there, there's no option for David. David just, okay, this is what we're doing, I guess. Maybe actually came up with a Okay, yeah. let's hear it. With a with a like, I mean, you're saying your expectations high right now. Like very high. I think I cracked open the the code. Davidic. The Davidic code. Mm-hmm. that's on behalf of God. Yeah. So, from the Mosaic law, a prophet speaking on behalf of God and not saying the right thing is binding in the sense he would be killed if he's lying Yeah. God. So, in that sense, him representing God in a little sight. So, it's binding by him. Oh, it's binding. Be- oh, okay. I see what you're saying. Yeah. So, Nathan speaks on behalf of God and and uh therefore, it's binding, good, yeah, yeah, I can see that yeah,
1: yeah,
0: I think so, and uh the sign of the sign of the covenant also would make it public, which is the temple itself, right. How do you know that there's a Davidic covenant? Temple. How do you know that God is dwelling among his people through this covenant? Temple. That's how you know. Yeah. There's a play on words. There's a play on words. Yeah, so uh, when David says that he wants to build God a house, that's fulfilled in the temple. When God says, I will build you a house, he means a dynasty. It's, it's metaphorical when God says it. The temple. Yeah, David didn't build the temple, right? Solomon did. Yeah, yeah. Be, be, when God says to David, I will build you a house, what he means is I'll build you a dynasty. When, when he says that your son will build me a house, he means a temple. So he uses temple, and like, he uses a play on words. So the word house means two different things within the context, I think. Let's talk about how, how this connects to the Sinai covenant. Does it connect to the Sinai covenant? Yeah, I think it does. Um, look at 2 Samuel 7, verse 6 and clearly i i have not lived in a house since the day i was i brought the people out of israel of israel out of egypt to this day but i've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling right the temple constructs a permanent dwelling whereas the sinai covenant constructed a temporary dwelling right but even if you look at verse 23 as well when david praises god Who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things and driving out before your people, whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt and a nation and its gods, right? So, once again, it's uh, God is praising, or David is praising God based upon his faithfulness to the Sinai, or to the Abrahamic covenant as expressed in the Sinai covenant, Right? He praises God because he's the God who brought his people out of Egypt. And what what sits in the temple? The Ark of the Covenant, right? So within the temple itself is that sign of the Old Covenant. So God continues to dwell with his people through the Davidic Covenant. And uh, Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 20, kings were required to write the law of Moses. Every, uh, every king had to write it. So if the Sinai covenant is not a part of God's progressive, unfolding, redemptive plans, uh, then you would expect some kind of different law for the king to rule by, right? So some people will say the, the covenants of grace go Abraham, uh, then they jump over Sinai, or the, you know, Noah, Abraham, jump over Sinai, David. But that makes no sense of the fact that the king was meant to rule with the law um, given to Moses, right? Uh, and this, the establishment of centralized worship as well for God's people um, was something that the Sinai Covenant anticipated. Look at Deuteronomy 12. twelve five through eighteen. But you will not seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all the tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go, and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithes, your contribution that you present, your vows and offerings and free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and flock. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your household, in all that you undertake, in which the Lord your God blesses you. You shall not do, you shall not do according to all that we are doing here today, everywhere doing whatever is right in His own eyes. For if you had not for if you had not as yet come to rest and to the inheritance that the Lord your God has given you. But when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God has given you to inherit and when He gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you will live and safely, then to the place the Lord your God will choose, to make his name dwell there. You shall bring all that I command to you, burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithes and contributions that you present, all your finest vows, offerings that you vow to the Lord. So the Sinai covenant anticipated centralized worship in a temple. So David constructs a temple as a fulfillment of God's promises, God's and Moses' prophecy. Right? And why were the people kicked out of the promised land? Do you remember? In exile. For unfaithfulness to what? The Davidic covenant? No. The Sinai covenant, right? So the Sinai covenant continues to be binding to the people, even under the Davidic administration. And and remember when David danced before the ark as it's brought into the temple, right? Because he's rejoicing that the presence of God as seen in the Sinai covenant is experienced under his rule as well. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, Solomon's Prayer. Second um, Kings, are you looking at 2 Kings 7? Or 2 Kings 17? Chronicles. Chronicles, read, read the text to us.
1: Would be concluded, which you have spoken to yourself about. Yeah. So it implies nice that there was he was
0: expected.
1: There was a door. you uh, he, he should have to work with God uh, in his laws. Yeah.
0: Uh, Fantastic. That's exactly right. Yeah. So these these are part of a single redemptive covenant. Or at least a single redemptive plan. If you're uncomfortable with the word covenant, covenants of the promise. Good. What about the Abrahamic covenant? What happens when in First Chronicles sixteen when the ark is brought back? What? Why does uh, David rejoice? Or on what basis does David rejoice? O oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the people, sing to him, sing praise to him, tell of his wondrous works, glory in his holy name, and let the hearers of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord in his strength, seek his presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments that he uttered. O oh, offspring of Israel, servant of his servant, children of Jacob, his chosen one, he is the Lord our God, his judgments are in all the earth. Remember his covenant forever, the word that he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant that he made with Abraham. So he he rejoices in the Abrahamic covenant when the Ark of the Covenant is brought into the temple. Which makes no sense unless you see these covenants as part of one overarching purpose of redemption of God. When God brings the Ark of the Covenant into the temple... He worships God for fulfilling the the Abrahamic covenant. But there's even hints, I think, here of the Sinai covenant as well, aren't there? Remember his wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and judgments that he uttered. O offspring of Israel, his servant, and Jacob, his chosen ones. This might be referencing the Exodus, might be. But it's most explicitly rec- uh, referencing the, um, the Abrahamic covenant. And uh, the king rules over the promised land, right? The, the land promised to Abraham. He rules over the people who are the descendants of Abraham. And, he, and we already mentioned that he promises to give Abraham a great name. Now, a couple of interesting observations. Look at, look at Psalm 78. In relation, the relationship between continuing the discussion, the relationship between this covenant and the other ones. Psalm seventy-eight. Actually, go ahead and read Psalm seventy-eight, and ask how is the how does the Davidic covenant play into Psalm seventy-eight? Okay, and especially with how it how it plays with other covenants. Psalm seventy-eight. Yeah, just go read it. Talk to your friend about it. So, especially verses, like understand what's going on in the whole Psalm, but especially verses 67 through the end. Yeah, especially 67 through the end of the chapter. But understand what's going on before that and talk to your groups about it. So, what's the problem of Psalm 78? What's the problem? Yeah, Israel keeps straying from God. They keep rebelling like the generation in the wilderness, right? So what's the solution in Psalm 78? Where does that pattern end? In choosing David, yeah. The choosing of David ends the pattern of rebellion that the first generation began. So that, with upright heart, he shepherds them. He guides them with skillful hand. They're guided. Like Moses guided the people. He shepherds them. Like Moses shepherded the people. But it ends the cycle of rebellion when the Davidic king comes. It's a very optimistic view of the Davidic monarchy in Psalm 78. Consider Psalm 2 also. So Psalm 78 is a significant Davidic covenant psalm in understanding how the biblical authors and the Israelites saw the need for the Davidic monarchy and the solution of the Davidic monarchy. But as uh, as another expression of the success of the Davidic monarchy, why do the nations raise and the people's plot in vain the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the lord and against his anointed saying so let's burst their bonds apart and cast their cords away from us and he who sits in heaven laughs because he has declared in 2 Samuel 7 i will put my son on the throne right as for me i've set my king on zion my holy hill i will tell to the decree The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Which it was read at the inauguration, this was probably read at the inauguration of the kings, right? You are my son, today I have begotten you, you have become my son in your enthronement. Ask of me, I'll make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. What is that in reference to? Abraham. Abraham, exactly, yeah, he fulfills the Abrahamic covenant so that they serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, and his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. So let's go back to Second Samuel 7. The Lord gives David rest from all of his enemies, referencing the Abrahamic covenant, the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, when the, all the nations are... Destroyed and pushed back. So then the ark dwells in a tent, referencing the, referencing the Sinai covenant. And it's upon the fulfillment of these covenants, upon God's covenant faithfulness to these Abrahamic and Sinai covenants, that God acts to f- make a Davidic covenant. But even look at Luke 1:26 26 26-33 to consider how Jesus fulfills this. And he his name Jesus. He will be great. Referencing, I think, Davidic covenants in here. I'll make his name great. He will be called son of the most high. And then it becomes most explicit. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. When Jesus comes, he fulfills this Davidic covenant. Look at uh, Amos 9 also, verse 11. This is talking about the people coming back from exile and experiencing the, the fullness of the Davidic monarchy. In those days I will rise up the fallen booth that has fallen and repair its branches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom And all the nations who are called by my name declares the Lord who does this. The days are coming declares the Lord when the plowman shall overtake the reaper. And the treader of grapes, him who sows seed. The mountain will drip a sweet wine and the hills shall flow from it. And I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel. They shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. And they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them in their land and they shall never again be uprooted on the land that I have given to them says the Lord your God. When is this fulfilled? Do we have an explicit text which says that this has been fulfilled? Think Acts. Book of Acts. Is Amos 9 quoted there? You think so? Where? Acts 15. Look at Acts 15, 12 through 21. This is uh, the Jerusalem Council, right? They're deciding how are Jews and Gentiles going to get along in the New Covenant. And this is what, this is what they, if you're going to quote a verse about Jews and Gentiles getting along in the New Covenant and why we should accept Gentiles into the New Covenant, would you quote Amos 9? Probably not. But that's what they do. Look at this. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they relayed to them the signs and wonders God had done ...through them among the Gentiles. Signs and wonders, where do we first see signs and wonders... ...in the Bible story? The exodus. exodus. Yeah, it's a reference to Exodus. Yes. Yeah, the Exodus. That's right. So when the signs and wonders are mentioned... ...even in Acts 2, I think the Exodus is in mind. So God is doing signs and wonders... ...not just in Israel. God is doing signs and wonders among the Gentiles. And he's doing it outside the Promised Land. Right, that's significant in Acts. is that God acts outside of the promised land after they finished speaking james replied brothers listen to me simon has relayed how god first visited the gentiles to take them to take from them a people for his name and with this word the prophets agree just as has been written how do you know the gentiles are part of the new covenant As was after after this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble these Gentiles who turn to God. What's he saying there? What's the fallen tent of David? Literally, it's the Davidic monarchy, but, or figuratively, it's the Davidic monarchy, but literally, what is the tent of David? The temple. Exactly. The day when the temple is rebuilt, Gentiles will come to know the Lord. So because the church is the new temple, the Gentiles are legitimate covenant members. Because this was prophesied to be true of the Davidic covenant in Amos 9. That's what's being said. So Amos nine is fulfilled, and Jews and Gentiles together become a united people of God, as Jesus rules over the church as the heir to the of the Davidic monarchy. Yeah. Uh, Peter also uses, uh, Amos. Yeah. So in is he Where does he use it? Uh, so I will shake the oh, in Acts two. In the in the sermon, is that right? Yes, this isn't immediately. He quotes. Uh, yeah, I think this isn't immediately relevant to the Davidic covenant question. I mean, it becomes relevant later on in the ser- sermon. Um, but let's see. What verse are we looking at? Nineteen. Yeah, so. Okay. Why don't we talk about Acts 2 while we're here, though? When when does Acts 2 happen? Pentecost. Pentecost, exactly, yeah. And we're describing when Peter decides to start talking, he quotes Joel, and he talks about pouring the Spirit upon all flesh, and there's signs in the earth below and the heavens above blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall to return to darkness, the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Has that happened yet? The sun hasn't, the moon hasn't turned to blood. Has it not? The day has come. When Christ died? Maybe. Maybe. You think it happened already? I agree with you. Yeah. I think that Peter is saying that when the Spirit comes, the new creation comes, and the old creation is undone. And the new creation is brought in. And I think that he's saying that Joel, too, is fulfilled in the pouring out of the Spirit, right? Because he says his people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day but this is what was uttered uttered through Joel. And he could have stopped it in verse 17, but he continues to talk about signs in the heavens above and on the earth below. I think he's saying that when the Spirit comes, the old creation is done away and the new creation comes. Anyway, that's the answer to your question, Yusakorn. Good. Any other questions about the Davidic covenant? Yeah. Yeah, I don't think so. I think I think there's an increasing awareness um, of God's people that there's going to be an ultimate son of David who comes. And that gets into our uh, new covenant question also, right? Because people go into exile and when they go into exile we got some serious problems with how we think about our standing before God and how this Davidic covenant functions, right? Especially because it seems like Straightforward reading the text, so there's always going to be someone in Jerusalem, right? But now we're exiled. Now God's presence has left the temple. It's, um, we're not in the promised land. We don't experience the rest. Uh, we have failed. We have broken the Sinai covenant. What are we going to do? And has God been unfaithful? Which is still a question at the time of Paul, right? And Romans 9 through 11 is written entirely to answer the question, has God been unfaithful to his covenant to Israel? So let's go ahead and take a break. And I want to uh, go off of your question um, as we transition to our new covenant conversation.